0: 2nd of July 1937. Somewhere in the Pacific. The crew of the USCGC Atasca, the US Coast Guard Cutter, are ecstatic. They get to be part of history in the making. A world-famous pilot is attempting the impossible and they get to be there for it. Amelia Earhart, the famous aviatrix, is circumnavigating the globe via aeroplane. She's not the first to do it, but this is the most ambitious attempt yet with the fewest people. With her is Frederick Noonan, her navigator for the venture, and they're flying in a Lockheed Electra 10E, specifically modified for the journey. The Itasca's job is fairly simple. The last 20,000 miles or so have been relatively easy navigation-wise, over land or following the coast mostly. But there's about 7,000 miles to go across the Pacific Ocean to complete the journey and pencil in the final piece of the puzzle. Noonan and Earhart herself are both good navigators, but doing so over open ocean can be difficult. You need to use all of the tools in your tool belt to keep an accurate reading of where you are and if you mess up, then it can have catastrophic consequences. To that end, the Itasca's job is to make their next checkpoint, Howland Island, as easy to find as possible. Between blasting out radio messages to Earhart's plane, using smokestacks to produce gouts of obvious smoke, and using advanced radio direction finding techniques, it should be fairly easy to help keep Earhart on the straight and narrow. You should be. A hard noon and take off from Laie Airfield in Papua New Guinea around midnight GMT in their heavily loaded plane full to the gunnels with fuel. Between 3 and 5 p.m. local time, the flight seems to be going smoothly with an altitude drop and then rise to avoid some heavy cloud cover. In terms of communication with the Itasca, Earhart's plane has some slight issues. It's got a loop antenna affixed at the top of the aircraft, capable of receiving and transmitting radio signals, but neither Earhart nor Noonan can communicate exclusively via morse code, so they're reliant on a smooth signal at the right frequency for viable communications. To make matters worse, the main idea is to use the radios to find the ship that's moored off of Howland Island. But the plane and the ship, the Itasca, have radios that work better on different frequencies to each other, and because of a variety of reasons, including some vital components being removed to shed weight, this problem is at its worst. Still, the route has been relatively carefully calculated to mostly span the equator across the world, thus providing a direct east to west circuit navigation, the Earth shape notwithstanding. It was planned to take around 40 days, a journey of over 29,000 miles, or told, and Earhart has serious skin in the game. The second person ever to solo cross the Atlantic via aeroplane, the first female transatlantic flight. She set records both for women and people in general, despite being born before women had the right to vote in America. Moreover, the Lockheed Electricity's flying was specifically kitted out for the job. Nicknamed the Flying Laboratory, it had a special fuel tank system that allowed over five times the usual fuel capacity of 200 pounds. They're a little set back though. 42 days into the journey, they depart Lae, heading for Howland Island. They're fully fueled for this leg at 1,000 pounds. This is the most fuel they've had on board at any one time of the whole expedition. The flight from Lae to Howland is supposed to take around 18 hours. Now, I myself have been on flights around and longer than that, owing to my expat upbringing. But even economy class on modern long-hauls have open bars and in-flight movies. This was in the days before aircraft cabins were properly pressurized, that being introduced commercially in 1938. The radio operator in La a, Harry Balfour, attempted to set up a line of contact between himself and Earhart at a rate of one communication per hour. However, his attempts to warn her that the headwinds coming in her direction were stronger than anticipated went seemingly unheard. Balfour did end up managing to get through at around 2.18pm. Up until that point it had been radio silence, but now she'd given her speed and her altitude, 140 knots, 7,000 feet. But just over an hour later, she stated she'd climbed to 10,000 feet. A strange move given her fuel economy was already endangered by the headwinds and would be worsened by climbing altitude. At this point though, Earhart is still ostensibly on course. Despite being cognizant of her fuel problems, doesn't change the fact that on approach to Howland Island, she'd be down to her last 97-gallon tank, running low indeed. Any error in navigation or aviation could mean trouble. The Pacific is big and wide and deep. If they ditch into the water for whatever reason, they'll be in a world of hurt. Between shark-infested waters, strong winds and waves, miles and miles of open water with no land, tropical storms and who knows what else, the stakes couldn't be higher. This is where the Itasca comes in. They manage to make comms with Earhart despite the radio incompatibility. As a matter of fact, the signal gets stronger and stronger as the sun begins to rise after a long night of flying and watching, a surefire sign that she's headed in the right direction. The crew of the Itasca breathes sighs of relief as a long night of watching and waiting draws to a close and Earhart can continue on her expected groundbreaking journey. The radio operator on the Itasca heads outside from the bridge onto the main deck of the cutter. He's been tracking the signal strength, and he and Earhart are in agreement. They should be close enough that he should be seeing her plane any minute now. As the sun starts to crest over the horizon, he's taking his cup of coffee and slowly enjoying it, relishing how he's about to be a part of this historic event. He doesn't realise how right he is. The first inkling comes when one minute turns to two, turns to five, turns to 10, turns to 30. He goes back to his post and attempts at re-establishing comms and Earhart confirms what he expects. Quote, We must be on you, but we can't see you. It must be cloud cover or some other weather blocking their ability to see one another, but this isn't good. Then, after a moment of discussion and update, gas is running low. That's not ideal. If she's right on top of them, but they can't see each other, then it means that she can't see Howland Island. And at this point, with the fuel levels that low, if she can't make a landing soon, there's going to be a big problem. Something's going to have to change for the better soon. Static cuts in. It's getting harder and harder to hear her. The radio operator on the Itasca leans in and at 8.43am he hears her last transmission. We are on line 157337. We will repeat message. We will repeat this message on 6,210 kilocycles. Her voice is frantic, unusual given her famed calm under pressure. Something's got her worked up, and the radio operator can't help but feel the same way. Then he hears something coming through the static. It sounds like... we're running north and south? But he can't be sure that it's Earhart. He starts to panic. If he can't re-establish the comms, then Earhart might as well be flying blind. If she can't see the Atasca or the island, how's she supposed to land? And at this point it's anyone's guess as to how much fuel she has, so time is of the essence. And then, silence. No more radio contact. The Itasca, and the world at large, never hears from Amelia Earhart ever again. When Earhart and Noonan fail to make their rendezvous on Howland Island, it becomes clear there's no way they could still be in the air, and the search parties go out. It's hard to understate how much of a celebrity Earhart is. This attempt is being watched all over the world for its technological and cultural significance. The Itasca begins its search. That's partly why it's here, after all. They look northwest of Howland Island, along the line that Earhart mentioned in her transmission, but they don't find anything. On the 7th of July, the USS Colorado searches southeast, and the USS Lexington travels from San Diego and searches until the 18th of July. They find nothing. On the 5th of January 1939, Amelia Earhart, along with Frederick Noonan, are declared dead in absentia, missing presumed dead. It's a stunning coup to the world of aviation. Earhart was an inspiration to men and women alike, and set records that firmly cemented her as a household name even when she was alive. Her legacy continues to this day. In 2014, an American pilot, Amelia Rose Earhart, named after her, completed the very same flight plan in her memory. And Earhart's work as an early feminist helped shape the political opinions of the Americas for the better, proving that women were just as capable pilots and explorers as men. But sometimes these larger-than-life figures bite off more than they can chew. The crew of the Franklin Expedition and Percy Fawcett could tell you as much in their own ways, That's the thing about exploration. There's always a risk, no matter how remote, that you won't come back. Richard Nixon, for instance, prepared a speech for the potential event that the Apollo 11 crew never came back from the moon. They did, but there was always a chance that they might not. And so Amelia Earhart passes into legend. The young girl from the Midwest dreaming of greater things, who within her own lifetime achieved an unparalleled level of career success and was a figure universally beloved and renowned, she made one final journey into the unknown and disappeared off the face of the earth. So with that spirit of discovery that I hold dear to my own heart, we explore the mystery. Whatever happened to Amelia Rehart? Hello and welcome to Demystified, with me, Ashley Stiles. This week we're looking at Amelia Earhart. But to tell the story, we're going to have to go all the way back to the very beginning, as we usually do. Amelia Mary Earhart was born on the 24th of July, 1897, in Atchison, Kansas. From an early age, she was shaped by her mother, who disapproved of the societally accepted notion that girls should be moulded into obedient housewives. For instance, she was allowed to wear bloomers, an early form of women's trousers, and relish the freedom that other girls didn't have at the time. To that end, she was what one might call a tomboy, shooting rats with a rifle, climbing trees, and sledding, even constructing a homemade roller coaster. By popular account, a mishap on that homemade roller coaster was her first experience with flying. Ironically, though, when she saw her first aeroplane in Iowa in 1908, she was apparently uninterested in it and went off to see other things at the fairground. Her life then came to be defined by challenging gender norms. A basic grasp of the sciences looked to be a potential career for her but in high school she resented how the chemistry lab felt like a kitchen sink, the then-expected career path for most women of that day. Between film directing and production, law, advertising, management and mechanical engineering, it seemed all she wanted to do was excel in an area that society would tell her that she couldn't. She found some work as a volunteer nurse in the closing days of the First World War and ended up contracting an illness while treating Spanish flu patients during the 1918 pandemic. This affected her and her flying career the rest of her life, having to have major sinus surgeries, but the illness did give her time to study mechanical engineering. Then, something curious happened. At an air show in Toronto in 1919, she was challenged by a World War I flying ace that she'd be scared off by his feats of daring flying. But she stood her ground, even as the plane made low passes over her head. In 1920, after dropping out of studying medicine at university, she accompanied her parents to an airfield in California, there, Frank Hawkes, a famous aviator, gave her a ride in this plane. It was only ten minutes, but she said the following, quote, By the time I had got two or three hundred feet off the ground, I knew I had to fly, end quote. After that, it was all she could think about. Working at a variety of jobs, including a photographer, a truck driver, a stenographer for the local telephone company, she managed to save $1,000 for flying lessons. She had her first lesson on the 3rd of January 1921 at Kinna Field near Long Beach, California, her teacher being Anita Snook, a pioneer female aviator. Earhart arrived with her father and a singular request. I want to fly. Will you teach me? In order to reach the airfield, she had to take a bus to all the way to the end of the line and then walk four miles. Her mother also provided part of the stake against her better judgment, she said. Ehart's commitment to flying required her to accept the frequent hard work and rudimentary conditions that accompanied early aviation training. She chose to wear the leather jacket, but aware that the other aviators would judge her for how new it was, she slept in it for three nights in a row to give it a worn look. And to complete the image, she cropped her hair short in the style of other female flyers. Six months later, in the summer of 1921, she purchased a second-hand bright yellow Kinner Airster biplane she called The Canary. On October 22nd of 1922, she flew it to an altitude of 14,000 feet, setting a world record for female pilots, and on May the 15th of 1923, she became the 16th woman in the United States. She then wanted to make headway in her career as an aviatrix, but real life prevented her. Another bout of sinus infection landed her in the hospital, and financial trouble stemming from bad investments meant she had to spend the next few years on the ground, saving every penny she could. But a stroke of good fortune came in 1927, After Charles Lindbergh made history by solo flying across the Atlantic in the spirit of St. Louis, it was decided that a woman should do the same, and after a number of candidates decided that they couldn't do it, Earhart was approached. She had been quietly making a name for herself in the right circles, and had the right image to gather the requisite sponsorship. In 1928, she flew across the Atlantic with pilot Wilma Stoltz and co-pilot Lewis Gordon, nominally as a passenger, but with a heap of things to do on board. But it didn't matter because this made her the first woman to fly transatlantic and the 20 plus hour flight was grueling enough but Earhart wasn't satisfied despite being hailed as a hero meeting the president being given a ticker tape parade she lamented the fact that she wasn't experienced enough to do any of the flying herself and she dreamed of making a solo attempt as Lindbergh had between endless sponsorships newspaper interviews magazine appearances she became an overnight celebrity Not only was she an accomplished female pilot, but now a record holder, and she had the fiery personality and gender-bending image to match. Despite this fame, she wasn't content to rest on her laurels, and sought to bolster her own legacy. Between racing records, marrying publisher and explorer George Putnam, and defying norms again by not changing her maiden name, and bolstering women's aviation through her support for the 99s, an organisation that she helped found for promoting women in the aviation industry, it being named after the 99 attendees of the 117 licensed female pilots, she eventually took her shot at the solo transatlantic crossing, and completed it in 1932, finally snagging her lifelong dream. She also completed a number of famous transcontinental flights, including the first ever flight of anyone from Hawaii to the mainland United States. But this wasn't enough for her. Her sights were set on the holy grail of flying, circumnavigating the world. Now, it had already been done before, in 1924, by some US Air Force pilots, but her journey would be different. For one, aside from a couple of navigators maybe swapping in and out throughout the journey, she'd be doing it mostly alone or with one other person, as opposed to eight pilots in four planes. Moreover, her flight would be the longest, 29,000 miles. Her mostly equatorial route would be a true circumnavigation, making use of the Earth's slightly bloated shape to have her trip be the furthest. So, she began planning in 1936. She procured the custom Lockheed Electra 10E with extra space for fuel compartments, and after much testing and debate, Fred Noonan was chosen as her navigator. Noonan was a prolific navigator in his own right, having worked for Pan Am, rated as a ship's captain, and experienced in celestial navigation, that is, navigation by the stars. Now, the first attempt didn't go very well. They started out fine on March 17th, flying east to west, on the first leg from Oakland, California, to Honolulu, Hawaii, but eventually there were problems. The plane experienced a crash on the runway in Hawaii while preparing to leave for Howland Island. They were flying the other way around. And when Henry Manning, their main radio operator and their first-choice navigator, left for home, Earhart and Noonan called it quits. Neither of them were skilled radio operators. More on that later. Their next attempt started far more smoothly. The first leg from California to Florida was unannounced, but after reaching Florida, Earhart publicly made plain her intention to circumnavigate the world, drawing a furore of media frenzy. The change in direction was due to changes in global weather patterns and wind conditions, making flying west to east easier than flying east to west, so the first jaunt would be across the Atlantic, then overland and along coasts, and then across the Pacific before home to California. This time, however, it was just Earhart and Noonan. Neither Manning nor any of the other planned navigators or technical advisors were with them, and this was as close as Earhart was willing to go to her ultimate dream of solo flying. After all, safety is safety. Now, the fateful leg comes into view. Lae, Papua New Guinea, to Howland Island, in the middle of the Pacific. She's loaded the plane up with fuel, despite projections that a slight cutting of fuel would save massively on weight, thus giving the plane a better overall range. She's the pilot, so her choice. The radio problems then come into play. Whilst Manning had been a skilled radio operator and well-versed in Morse code, neither Earhart nor Noonan were as good as he, and thus when the radio problems kicked in, neither were able to account fully for them. Now, I could go into excruciating detail on the specific broadcast bands and hertz frequencies of the radio signals. I will try and condense this as much as I possibly can, and it does get seriously technical. On a very basic level, Earhart's plane had a radio antenna loop on the top, which was supposed to rotate and broadcast and receive radio signals. These signals could be used in much the way that radar would end up being developed in World War II, to track a plane's location, in this case from the US CGC Itasca. But the radio was having problems going into that leg of the flight and could only broadcast on certain frequency bands. The Itasca could only pick up certain frequency bands on its radio equipment. On top of this, the Itasca and Earhart were using different time zones to calculate their locations, and believe it or not, it's a serious factor in navigation. Hence tools like naval chronometers. You know that old trope: if a train leaves Boston at 3:15 p.m. traveling 80 miles an hour, it's warranted. You need to know what time you left and what time you want to get there and what speed you're going to know how far you've gone if you're marking yourself on the map with no invisible landmarks. The loop antenna that I mentioned also comes into play. When operated beyond their designated frequencies, they lose the ability to receive and send directionality, thus making it harder and harder for the Itasca to accurately chart Earhart's position, and harder in turn for Earhart and Noonan to chart their own positions. So now we come to our fateful final flight, Earhart and Noonan try to establish communication with the Itasca, their only real hope for finding Howland Island should their navigation prove insufficient, but the communication is too sketchy and isn't nearly enough for them to navigate by. After that final communication of their location, or possibly the north-south addendum, they go silent. And that's the last the world ever hears of Amelia Earhart. ...be issued a pilot's license. With all of that established, let's now dive into the theories. The first main theory, as you would expect, is that the plane ran out of fuel after failing to find Howland Island and Earhart crashed. Early skeptics pointed out that her fuel would have lasted her 24 hours in flight, but with the headwinds taken into account, that goes down to more like 20 hours, lining up with her cut off of the comms. Near Howland Island, the ocean runs at about 18,000 feet deep, so if her plane did go down there it's super unlikely that 1930s tech would have been able to find her but beyond that, modern technology has also been unable to find our plane. Modern technology doesn't always find what it's looking for. For instance, we did find the Titanic, but MH370, the Malaysian airline's plane that went missing, has only had partial bits of debris potentially identified after years of international search efforts with the finest modern technology. So it's possible our plane is still at the bottom of the ocean, hidden in the depths of the Pacific, which is deep and enormously wide, presenting a very difficult hunting ground. Now, Earhart was a strong pilot and Noonan was a strong navigator. The issue that scuppers them is that Howland Island is a difficult island to approach from any side. It's 640 acres in total. England, by contrast, is 60 million acres. Central Park in New York is around 840 acres. So if you imagine something that is smaller and flatter and harder to see than Central Park from the air, 10,000 feet up in the air potentially, in the middle of a vast, unchanging sea of nothingness, that's how hard it is to find. So really, they needed to rely on their radio navigation, a technology at the time that was still in relevant infancy. It wasn't brand new, but if you don't have a good radio navigator on board, then you're going to be up the proverbial creep. Noonan was a skilled celestial navigator, allowing him to navigate at night where others would have failed. But this assumes that the clown conditions permitted it, This could be why Earhart made the climb to 10,000 feet, sacrificing airspeed efficiency for a shot at tracking her location with the stars. Ultimately, with that kind of fuel, clothes only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. That is to say, whilst 20 hours and 24 hours can sound like a lot, if you've been flying 18 hours already at least, and you can't find the landing strip, you can't afford to mess around. As we discussed when we talked about the Bermuda Triangle, when a plane runs out of fuel, it's all a pilot can really do at that point to glide it down to earth as gently as possible. You really can't do any complex navigation from that point forward. On top of that, taking the line that she was last recorded flying on, 157337, and her relative signal strength as recorded by the Itasca, while she would have been real close to Howland Island, again, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, and her line would have had her crash land in the sea off the northwest coast of Howland Island, hence why the Itasca searched there first. But this is far from the only theory. Wait till you get a load of this one. One theory posits that she and Noonan spent time as castaways on Gardner Island, now called Nakumaroro. Nakumaroro is around 350 nautical miles south of Howland Island. It is along the line that Earhart would have been reported flying on, and the theory goes that if she'd spotted it at a low tide and had been out of fuel, she'd have seen enough of a beach to land on. Unlikely, she'd have thought that that small atoll was Howland Island, but any port in a storm, right? between 1939 and 1940, Gerald Gallagher, a British officer of the Colonial Office, found the remains of a campsite on the island, along with a sextant, a tool used in celestial navigation. Noonan, hint hint. With Earhart's famed problem-solving under pressure and aviation talent, it's entirely likely she could have ditched the plane on Nakumaroro and survived the attempt. Difficult, for sure, but far from impossible. But Gallagher didn't just find the sextant. He found a partial human skeleton, along with 12 other bones. He took these remains to D.W. Hoodless, a physician working at a medical school in Fiji, but Hoodless dismissed the finds as belonging to a short, stocky man of European descent, thus ruling out Earhart and Noonan. But Hoodless discarded the bones after that, ruling out any potential future analysis, so if Hoodless made a mistake, as physicians often do... And the crucial evidence is gone forever, but it's not all gone. The International Group for the Historic Aircraft Recovery measured the measurements and studied them that Hudlers took at the bones and discovered that they could have actually belonged to a taller than average woman of the time. Earhart was said to be around five foot eight, a mere inch shorter than a modern American man, and four inches taller than a modern American woman on average. So if Earhart's five foot eight and the average height of an American woman at the time is below five foot three as per Time Magazine's historical height calculator, that it's entirely plausible that if the basic measurements that Hoodless took were correct, then those bones could have been Earhart's. Noonan would have been too tall, around six foot one, so the bones were unlikely to be his. Here's where this theory gets a bit grim. She dies on a desert island, but why are there only partial bones? Coconut crabs. Coconut crabs are massive, up to three foot long with pincers that as the name implies can crack coconut shells, they're the largest land arthropods. But they don't just eat coconut, they'll eat basically anything they come across, including carrion. And they live on Pacific islands, including Nikumaroro. So, let's say they happen across a seriously wounded or dead, Earhart or Noonan, they'd have absolutely no qualms about eating them so the crabs could have carried them off into their burrows, thus providing only a partial skeleton. Several possible radio transmissions from Earhart were heard around the time that the Nikumaroro Island was at low tide for about a week after her disappearance. If the plane had crashed on the shore or just off the island, that's when the radio would be accessible. Matter of fact, a ham radio enthusiast named Betty Clank, a teen at the time, said she heard a broadcast saying, This is Amelia Earhart, help me, and Water's knee deep, let me out as well as an argument between her and a disoriented male voice. I leave it to your imagination as to what that could suggest. Clank listened for three hours to the voices, and her dad reported it to the Coast Guard, but since this was one of many reports at the time, they didn't take it fully seriously. In 1991, a partial rubber shoe sole was found on Nikumaroro, stamped Cat's Paw Rubber Company, USA, the same type of shoe Earhart was known to have worn but from a shoe size that was ever so slightly too big for Earhart's foot. Also found on Nukumaroro was a stamped piece of aeroplane aluminium, but the debate rages as to whether that was from Earhart's plane or another plane In the debate and the consensus tends towards no. The other nail in the coffin for the Nukumaroro theory is that it was surveyed aerially by searchers on the 9th of July, one week after her disappearance. But if the plane had sunk, or she'd been eaten by crabs and she'd been eaten by crabs, then it's possible that there wouldn't be anything to find, and that would explain why nothing was found by the aerial searchers. Roland C. Reynick, a retired US Air Force colonel, posits that Earhart was actually a spy for the American government. Her plan, supposedly, was to ditch off the Marshall Islands if she couldn't find Howland, at the time owned by Japan, thus allowing the government to recon the island's defences under the guise of searching for her. Now, if you know your world history, you'll know that US-Japanese relations in 1937 weren't great. Japan's plans to create a Greater East Asian Co-Prosterity Sphere, as they called it, including annexing US territory, and that was really the crux of Pearl Harbor, the surprise attack on the US fleet. Japan knew that its imperial ambitions would put it at odds with the Americans, and decided to attack first. But the US wasn't totally unaware of this. They've been watching the Japanese build-up for some time, and since Japan seemed to routinely ignore the international community's request to stop, even accidentally attacking the Americans with the USS Panay incident a year later, it wouldn't be too surprising that the US intelligence wouldn't want to take a chance on surveying the Japanese build-up at the Pacific. Now, locals of the Marshall Islands claimed they saw the Japanese capture Earhart and Noonan, who were supposedly released at the end of the war and resume their lives under assumed identities, one of the assumed identities, however, of Earhart, a woman called Irene Bolam, actually sued a newspaper for claiming that she was Earhart, and bore basically no resemblance to Earhart. So, not much to that particular gist, but the overall theory could be possible? Another version of this idea posits actually that the Japanese executed Earhart and Noonan. In 1944, Sergeant Thomas Devine of the U.S. Army claimed that he saw some marines guarding a hangar on the formerly Japanese island of Saipan, which supposedly contained Earhart's Electra 10E. Devine then said that the soldiers had orders to destroy the plane. On top of that, a photo that seemed to show Earhart and Noonan, obscured as they were on a dock in the Marshall Islands, was found in the U.S. National Archives by Les Kinney, an American government investigator. Now, the photo isn't great. I typically don't go in for those kinds of things, pictures with people turned away from the camera don't really convince me, some experts seem to think it's legit, but the fact that some bloggers apparently found the same photo in a Japanese book on the islands published in 1935, two full years before Earhart's flight, diminishes that theory. And given her fuel problems, Earhart wouldn't have even had enough fuel to make it to the Marshall Islands unless she'd made a total beeline for them from Lae. Even then she wouldn't have made it for sure. And then there's Aliens again. Now, let's be real. The main evidence for that is an episode of Star Trek Voyager depicting the abduction of Amelia Earhart by Aliens. For me, though, it's like the Bermuda Triangle. It's a whole lot of nothing. It could have been, but it could have also been the Hand of God, as drawn by Terry Gilliam in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, grabbing her plane out of the sky to comical sound effects. I only really mention it again, because given that this podcast skirts the true crime genre, There's no doubt there's going to be plenty of tinfoil hat wearers out there begging for me to say that it's aliens. It's not. I mean, here's the thing. Even when physical evidence is slim, there are still some theories that are definitely interesting that could have your belief suspended, your disbelief rather, and could potentially show through, like the spy theory. Unlikely? Yeah, sure, but impossible, definitely not. Especially if you know the political situation between the US and Japan at the time, I don't think it's at all unlikely that the US government would have approached Earhart and Noonan to recruit them for espionage efforts. I do think, though, that it's unlikely they'd ask them to crash land and risk capture to provide a pretense for the rescue or spy flights. Let's say, though, that the government asked Earhart to stray from her path to see if the Japanese navy was on manoeuvres, and maybe she wasted too much fuel and crashed. Totally plausible. If equally totally unsubstantiated. So what do I think happened? I reckon theory too, to be honest. There's something fascinating about the idea that Earhart and Noonan did manage to get off a radio signal after their ditching. It at least provides a slightly more satisfying narrative than the idea that they crashed into the sea and exploded on impact, The first main theory is by far the most likely. After all, the ocean's pretty big, and it would go a long way to explaining why no concrete evidence has ever been found. The big question mark at the centre of all of this are the bones that we lost because Hoodless threw them away. It's one of those infuriating moments in historical mysteries, like how Schliemann destroyed a wealth of archaeological findings at Troy because they didn't fit his narrative. If we just had those bones today, we could do a DNA testing on them and see if there was a genetic match. That'd settle the matter definitively, Given that they could either be kind of only Earhart or not remotely Earhart, there's not much wiggle room, it'd sort us right out. But we don't have that. Modern testing using the dimensions listed by Hoodless does support the idea that it could have been Earhart, since it matches her size and her height, but the other evidence isn't exact. The shoe sole matches Earhart's shoes, but not her size. The aeroplane metal is aeroplane metal, but it's not definitively from her Electra and we've got no full reference for whether the other assorted bones matched Noonan. Perhaps she ditched her plane in the water. Noonan dies on the landing, and Earhart makes it to the beach, but succumbs to one cause or another and gets eaten by coconut crabs. Plausible, but I'm just speculating on the slim evidence that we have. I don't buy into the spy theory, really. It makes more sense than those in the crackpot category, but it's just a matter of physics. Between the headwind, even with or without it, Earhart wouldn't have been able to make it to both the Marshall Islands and Howland Island, and the Marshalls were further away than Howland. It makes no sense for her to intentionally ditch off the coast. Risky, even for an experienced pilot. And with their reputation for barbaric cruelty well-earned in Manchuria and China, the Japanese military wouldn't have been high on anyone's list to be accused of espionage by, if their conduct in the Second World War also was anything to go off of. It's a big gamble with bad odds for not much gain. Sure, the US Navy would want any opportunity to spy on the Japanese, but there's easier ways to do it than risking a high-profile public figure like Earhart. For me, it's between the sinking in the sea and crashing on Nukumaroro. The latter just doesn't have the full physical evidence, whilst the former is just Occam's razor. Simple, probably true, but ultimately unsatisfying and in the face of a lack of evidence, I'm willing to suspend disbelief for a little bit. But all of it's a little bit unsatisfying, really. The story of such an incredible person, pushing the limits of human endurance and achievement to end so tragically. My dad actually asked me the other day whether it's sad reading all the stories of these failed explorers, Franklin, Fawcett, and now Earhart, even the settlers of Roanoke to some extent. And on the one hand, it can be sad, looking at their stories. And it runs the gamut. Between Franklin and his men, who were the definition of so close but yet so far, to Percy Fawcett's crazy pipe dream that ended up being kind of true, whether he knew that or not, to the dreams of the Roanoke settlers, whose wish for a thriving colony would eventually come true, under later banners. Earhart's legacy would never die, though. Her disappearance would be mourned round the world. Sadly, one more downer event in a spiral that ended with the Second World War, leaving her forgotten. But if you think that her legacy was swamped by that, think again. Many women she inspired to become pilots at the time became civil aviators during and after the war, and the 99s are still an organisation today, pushing for more women and women's visibility in the field of aviation. The WASPs, Women's Air Force Service Pilots of the Second World War, were that generation who grew up on the live achievements of Earhart and went on to build her legacy. She's had every accolade under the sun awarded to her, both during her lifetime and posthumously, including a lunar crater in 2015. Between bridges and ships, statues and holidays, charity funds and roads, celestial bodies and scholarships at both Purdue University, where she held a position, and in the 99s, which she founded, her name is familiar as a household word. Even to this day, anyone with a rudimentary working knowledge of the 1930s will know the name Amelia Earhart. So it's not all sad... Many famous explorers meet ignominious ends, as we've discussed and will more than likely revisit in the future. Sure, sinking in a crash plane or being eaten by coconut crabs isn't the way that most people would want to go out, it's a bit of a far cry from going peacefully in your sleep, but the legacies that these explorers leave behind have spurred on many to do great things. As I mentioned in episode 4, Roald Amundsen was directly inspired by Franklin's failure to become a polar explorer, completing the first Northwest Passage and achieving the first successful journey to the South Pole. We as humans stand on the shoulders of giants, our predecessors, and in their footsteps we go on to greater things than we ever thought were possible. Through each failure, we see a new way to go about doing things, and it's only because these brave people push the boat out that we see just how far we can go. You can only ever find out whether or not you can ride a bicycle by risking falling over. In the same way, explorers show us what we can and can't achieve by taking those falls, and eventually someone will make the ride and get to be the hero. So that's the lesson of this story, that we can take from Amelia Earhart. Whether or not you succeed can often be relatively immaterial. It's the effort that counts, it's the attempt, it's the taking the risk and the trying and the failing. Because sometimes in life, you need to be prepared to put your cards on the table and put all your chips into the pot. And Amelia Earhart lost the draw on the dice. Happens to the best of us. If we always succeeded even the most dangerous adventures, there wouldn't be a reward for doing it but those who came after her built on the foundation that she gave her life to construct. So it's not all sad, because if she could look forward and see what she created, even in the continued existence of the 99s and what they've done for women in aviation, and what she was able to do for women's rights at the time and in the future, she'd probably say it was all worth it, even in the end. So don't give up on your dreams, because every mistake you make is a lesson learned, both for yourself and for those who come after you. Your legacy may yet be unwritten, so don't be afraid to go after it. And if someone inspires you, then use that inspiration. That's what gives people a legacy, after all. This episode of Demystified was written, researched, and recorded by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting help from Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.